It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest is an adoptee, an adoptive parent, and a certified coach with the Enneagram Personality Test. Her name is Melissa Corkum, and I had the pleasure of meeting her when I signed up for her Enneagram Book Club this year for eight weeks. It was through Suzanne Stabile, whom Melissa and many others regard as an internationally recognized Enneagram Master Teacher, that I became acquainted with the Enneagram as another powerful tool for living a more holistic life. In this episode, Melissa shares a part of her adoption journey as an adoptee and an adoptive mother and how she is contributing to the adoption community with the podcast, The Adoption Connection, which she hosts with Lisa. During times in our conversation, she directs some of my questions back at me I rather enjoyed that to help me get more insight into a dominant personality type five. In Melissa's bio, she states, many adoptees struggle with issues of identity and belonging. Some have never met another adoptee or may have been the only person of color in their town. As an adoptee and adoptive mom, she is passionate about giving the adoption community the words that help them make sense of their experiences. She loves how the Enneagram helps you realize you're not alone and nothing is wrong with you. It can help you find belonging and transformation. Allow me to introduce you to someone who is knowledgeable, passionate, and committed to helping adoptees make better sense of their adoption story by being curious about how we might be genetically hardwired from the beginning of our lives, coupled with being relinquished at birth. Melissa, how are you doing today? I am good. It's so good to be with you, Jennifer. Yes, I am so happy to have this conversation for so many reasons. And I guess I'll start with how we met, which is through the book club. I joined your Enneagram, The Journey Toward Wholeness by Suzanne Stabile and I think the the main reason it piqued my interest is because I got a chance to meet Suzanne via Zoom meeting, which was with the Adoptive Voices Writing Group created by Sarah Easterly. And that was earlier this year, like February. And I just got really excited about this holistic way of living that we can all benefit from. So I'm just pleased that I met you and I'm really loving the Wednesday group and Maybe we can start there with the Enneagram. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm an adoptee and an adoptive mom and learned the Enneagram probably four or five years ago. And at first it was just kind of like another personality test, kind of maybe like Myers-Briggs or Finders. But what I discovered is that it has so much more depth. It has kind of this spirituality and, you know, encouragement to go really deep in terms of your own personal awareness and growth. And interestingly, for me, was the tool that allowed me to make sense of so much of my adoption story. And the way I had processed it was a little bit different than other adoptees I had talked to. And in some ways, it had created some shame around, you know, am I a terrible adoptee and all of these things. And what the Enneagram helped me understand was that there are these nine different lenses of how we all filter our experiences through and and that lens makes a difference. And so I think it has given me really good language to help myself and then help other adoptees kind of process questions they've had about their story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think to my knowledge, you are the second guest to be on 
my podcast that is an adoptee and an adoptive parent. I'm always interested in hearing from all members of the Constellation, so that's why I'm so glad you agreed to to be on. And because you are a seven, right? You're a dominant type of seven. Yeah. So as a seven, for those who are, you know, know nothing about the Enneagram, what that just means is, you know, I filter through a lens of my core motivation is to not really live in the negative part of our emotional spectrum, right? I tend to want to reframe everything to a positive. I tend to process a lot with logic and thinking and, and not a lot with feelings. I have to kind of work really hard to be in touch with feelings. It also means that my time orientation is to the future. I'm kind of always thinking about what's next. And I don't naturally spend a lot of time looking backwards. Mm-hmm. You know, I think my dominant type is five, as I've told you. And at times I totally identified with seven. And so I am just curious to know, like, as a five, like what I go to and stress, which is seven, how you, how you would describe that how you would, um, I guess for the listener, maybe just start with what, what is a dominant five? What were the characteristics? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll, I'll flip it to you, Jennifer, and just ask, you know, how did you land on five or what were the things that you know about fives that resonate with who you are and how you kind of view the world? Yeah. So one of the, the main things that stuck out for me was that I'm fiercely independent and that I tend to do deep dives with research and finding things out. And I realized that the reason why I do it, which is why I like the Enneagram, it tells you kind of like why you do, you figure out why you do what you do. And it is about letting go of as much anxiety as I can. So I'm doing all this research and all this reading and studying and trying to find things out to decrease my level of anxiety. Those things stood out to me the most. And I guess the the next thing would be that I tend to hoard information. And then we were talking one day and you said if you overheard someone uh, with a question about something and you had the answer, you would interject, you would help them. And I would definitely not do that. That's not my go-to. I would hear, I may know the answer, but I wouldn't say anything. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Similar. That's one of the most fun parts of the conversation we've had in this adoptee group that we've been working through this summer is kind of throwing out these scenarios and then asking people what they would have done or how they would have processed it in that in that instance. Did you identify as an anxious person before we had that conversation? Yeah, pretty pretty much. Yeah, I have been more in touch with the anxiety when it comes up since I've been in therapy. I've, I think that I was not as aware of it in the past like I am now. And as I've been like sitting with how I'm feeling in my head and also in my body, I'm like, yeah, I have quite a bit of anxiety. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm learning more about that. And that's the other thing about a five that resonated with me is the thinking versus the feeling. And I am starting to get more in touch with my feelings instead of just thinking all the time. And you're a lot like me. And so I'm curious as an adoptee, how that played out. Have you, do you identify with having big feelings about your adoption story? Say that again. We kind of both identify as this kind of what we call the thinking triad in the Enneagram. Mm Mm-hmm so that we tend to take in information with thinking and process it through often a more logical lens and maybe a less emotional lens. And so I'm wondering, there's kind of this, I think, assumption sometimes in the adoption world that kind of all adoptees kind of feel big feelings of maybe sadness or grief or shame over their adoption story, over maybe being abandoned or not being raised by their birth mom. And so I'm wondering, you know, have you processed your story more with thinking or do you identify with having big emotions around your adoption? Oh, I definitely don't have big emotions. I I would say I have more or I'm kind of looking at 
the feelings part of my story more now, but I have clearly been just thinking about it through the years, like in my 20s and 30s. And even as a, a little person, I was just thinking, not, not, not really sitting with feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I kind of identify as well. Like I had lots of thoughts about my adoption, but had never really identified a lot of big feelings or big emotions around it. Mm-hmm. And one thing about sevens, which made me pause to wonder if I possibly was a seven is reframing. I, I know when you shared with me that sevens are big on reframing uh, things to the positive. I'm really about that. Like, and I've done that for years. So that also stuck out to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if that's, you know, part of a coping mechanism. I wonder, it would be interesting, right, to do some more research and, and talk to more adoptees and wonder, even independent of number, if that's a coping mechanism of adoptees, mm-hmm. is that reframing? Yeah. So as an adoptee and an adoptive parent, I would like you to share a part of your journey, which, whichever one you want to start with and wherever you want to start and however much you want to share. Is that okay? So I was adopted as an infant from Korea in the 80s, and it was really common then. At that time, the Korean adoption program was pretty well known. There were a lot of infants coming to the state through that program. I'm the oldest of three. We're all adopted from Korea. None of us are genetically related. And I've always known I'm adopted. I think that's part of the transracial piece. You know, it's hard to keep any secrets when you don't look like the people you're being raised by. And I kind of wore my adoption journey like a badge. We celebrated something called Airplane Day in our family, which was the day that we came on an airplane to meet our parents. Back then, it was less common for parents to travel to Korea. And what would happen is the agency in Korea would just put six to 12 kids on a plane and send them to the States. Mm. And so I know, crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> sure. uh, and so we celebrated Airplane Day, which is the day we landed. And in our family, it was like a second birthday. You know, we got to pick a special dinner and we got a small gift. And my parents would also use that time to tell us our adoption story. And so I just remember as a kid kind of playing that up, like, kind of looks like nanny, nanny, boo-boo. Like if you were adopted, you would get a second birthday too. And so this is, I think, you know, just an illustration of how characteristic it is of someone who just can reframe anything that happens in real time to something positive. And it frankly never occurred to me until I was an adoptive mom and listening to the voices of other adoptees to stop and consider that the adoption experience for an adoptee could be filled with shame and grief and loss and really big feelings and really big, you know, I guess kind of what we call negative feelings. Not that I think they are categorically negative, but you know, the things that we think about like sadness and grief. So I I was kind of taken aback by all of that. My two siblings have processed their stories very differently. And I think my sister in particular maybe falls more in, in where she's really kind of felt the grief of, of her adoption. And interestingly, it was my husband who always thought he'd adopt as a father and told me that very early on in our relationship and didn't know I was an adoptee at the time. And so it just feels like it was kind of always destined to be part of our family. And so we had two kids by birth pretty early on in our marriage. And then started an adoption process for a toddler from Korea who was on a, like a minor special needs waiting list. So he came home in 2009. He's now almost 16. And then in 2012, it's a long story, but we ended up bringing home three unrelated older children from Ethiopia. Uh, They were 11, 13, and 14 at the time. And so they're all in their 20s now. We've just learned a lot, you know, now more of our family who lives in our house are 
adopted than not. And so there's just a lot of experiences to glean from. You are a host with Lisa of a podcast called The Adoption Connection. And I had an opportunity to listen to episode 186. And you share on there a little bit about uh, your husband being a type one, going back to the Enneagram, and you being a seven, and how you all came up with the whole idea of adopting. Do you want to share a little bit about that? So kind of just revised to edit to say he's kind of jumped around on the Enneagram and is less motivated to land on a dominant type than I am. And so he hasn't quite narrowed it down, but he has a lot of behaviors that strike us as a one. And so ones um, really just want to be good. And one of the things when Lisa and I work with parents is we do use the Enneagram to kind of help parents tease out why they chose to adopt and kind of really dig into it. And, and that helps us, you know, put words to what were our expectations going into adoption. And if those expectations don't meet our reality of how it actually turns out, what does that look like? There's a lot of grief work to be done there on that part of the adoption, on that side of the adoption triad. And so for him, it, it was, it kind of made sense. He kind of felt like it was the right thing to do. He sold shoes in high school at a shoe store in the mall and sold shoes to a lot of children in foster care. And he just remembers thinking, wow, there are so many kids that, you know, don't have permanent families. Why do we keep bringing more kids into the world when there's so many that need families? And so he wanted a big family. We wanted a big family. And so we had our two kids by birth and then, you know, felt just really drawn to the adoption world. Uh, and so that's how we ended up with four more kids, but all through adoption. Mm-hmm. What do you think has been the most challenging thing about being a adoptive parent? I think adoptive parenting is trickier, more complex than parenting kids who we make from scratch, as sometimes I affectionately mm-hmm. call them. Right. And I think it is the best way in some ways to reveal all the cracks in our own personalities. And it really has forced me to understand past hurts, things that I carry from my own childhood, both as an adoptee and, you know, just a kid growing up and insecurities. And I think the biggest thing is I love control. I love, you know, that's part of being able to stay on the positive side of the emotional spectrum is, you know, not entering into things that knowingly are going to be hard and painful. And of course, adoption is all of those things. And it's such an integral part of our family story now that I've, I've really had no option other than to, you know, work some of those out in my own personal life and like in my marriage and, you know, figuring out different ways to parent and see behavior and relate to my kids that don't involve control. And for me personally, that I think that's been the trickiest. Do you think being an adoptee gives you an advantage as an adoptive parent? I do in some ways, and I don't in others. I think the advantage is I'm even though I had not strongly identified with fear of abandonment, I think it is deeply seated in my body. And I think it comes potentially a little bit easier to me to have compassion for kids and their behaviors. I mean, whenever it's happening in your own family, in your own household, it's always trickier. So I'll just caveat with that. I'm not a perfect parent by any stretch of the imagination, but I remember, you know, I, I didn't have words for it at the time. And of course, what is available to help parents understand trauma was not available then, but you know, I remember huge periods of dysregulation. I was a rager and 
um, I just remember the feelings of overwhelm and I was a thumb sucker and no one knew about sensory processing or self-soothing back then, you know? And so I can, um, I can empathize with a lot of kids and how, how they're using their behaviors. And then on the flip side, because I'm a parent to kids with really big behaviors as well, I can also empathize with the parents that it's, it's hard, even when you know that behaviors aren't willful um, or your kids just being jerks, that it's like this deep seated, you know, lack of felt safety. It's still tricky. Um, I think the downside of it is I think adoptees often more than children with out, you know, complex trauma have a lot more stability in terms of attachment in their own nervous systems. And so I think as an adoptee parenting kids with also with complex trauma is it makes me more susceptible to be triggered or to struggle with dysregulation because that's also, you know, in my body and in my history. Thank you for sharing all of that. That was good. Now, going back to the Enneagram for a moment, what would you tell a listener is the best way for them to determine or kind of get close to knowing their dominant type? Should they take a test or or should they read? Yeah, I am a pretty huge proponent of what we call like narrative teaching of the Enneagram, just because that's the way that it started. It goes back definitely centuries, perhaps thousands of years, we see evidence of it in a lot of ancient cultures. And it was just this oral tradition that was passed down and it was part of the culture. And of course it's trendy right now. And so we see it on Instagram and we see it summarized in these cute, pithy, you know, memes and, and there are tests now, but I don't, I think it's almost impossible for a test to really tease out why we do what we do. And really that's what the Enneagram is asking us to consider is our motivation behind the behavior. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's really easy for a test to kind of help us see a pattern of behaviors, but it's really hard. You were talking about reframing to positive. And so, you know, we could even talk about like, have you ever thought about why you do that, you know, are the reasons that you do that different than the reasons I do that since we identify as different, you know, as having different core motivations and um, that, you know, that's tricky on a test. And so I think the dialogue, the relationship, it's why this group that we're in the summer together, I think has been so powerful because we get to have this dialogue. We get to hear other people's experiences and see where we're alike and where we're different. And it's not a rush. I, I think we're in a society that so results oriented, but I think there's value in the process of figuring out what your dominant type is. There are a couple folks in our group who don't know, and they've just been kind of learning as we go. And I, I, I don't think the experience is any less valuable when you're in that spot. And so I think just, again, appreciating that it's the process that's powerful, not the, you know, landing on your type is not the end all be all. Right. I just love this group. This this uh, book club group is just wonderful. And I know when we do share experiences that we've had and apply the Enneagram, it, it definitely is so insightful for me. And I think, I don't know if it was this week, but you you mentioned something about as a seven being considered bossy. Was that the word you used? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I have, we were talking, I think we were talking about, you know, words that described us as children or words that we remember, like common themes of feedback we were given as children. And it was a, um, it was not uncommon for an adult in my life to tell me I was bossy. (laughs) And so how did being bossy, we'll just use that word, as a seven affect your learning? Wow, that's a great question. I, I think... It, I've, I've probably missed opportunities to learn over the years because it took me way too long into my adulthood to really value other people's experiences. And I think part of being bossy is 
sometimes overconfident. And I, you know, in my teens and early 20s, I, you know, and this is kind of cliche, but I, I kind of thought I knew it all. I mean, I didn't think I knew everything, but I, I, I thought I was right most of the time, you know, and I thought my perspective was right. And, um, and so I think the Enneagram has been so helpful because it's been so gentle in helping me realize the, that there are these other ways that people see the world. And I, you know, it sounds so silly whenever I talk about it to people, I'm like, people see the world differently and everyone's like, duh. But I, I think what we don't realize is that we cognitively will admit that everyone sees the world differently. And yet we're probably still holding on to something that we believe is a universal truth that isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, just from parenting young adults, even the discussions we've had this summer, people will say, yeah, we're all different, but surely everyone sees this, right? Or so we parented or had lived with us a young man who had aged out of Baltimore City's foster care system. And I think one of the things that parents like to think is more or less universal is like the idea of respect you know, we all have different perspectives, but yet like there's kind of this morality code that we kind of think is universal. And there was a point in time when he was living here that it was pretty frequent that he would wake up the entire house with loud music playing on a speaker. Mm. And, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning. And at the time there were uh, 13 people living here. And that's a lot of people to wake up, you know, to just disrupt their sleep. And I just remember saying, you know, multiple times, like, dude, I don't care if you're sleeping, but you, and you can listen to music, but it has to be on, you know, headphones or earbuds or something. Like it just can't be blaring on speakers. And I, I kind of felt like, I don't know why I have to say this out loud. And, you know, I, I said at one point, like nighttime is for quiet. Like the house needs to be quiet. People need to sleep. And he just kind of looked at me and he cocked his head and he was like, oh, like night times were never quiet where I grew up. Mm. Like he lived in the inner city. No one ever had respected his sleep, you know, or his quiet. Right. And, um, and, and that's not a specific Enneagram example. It's just a, a cultural example, but it just, I think goes to illustrate that there's really just nothing universal in the world. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And and I got to go back and say, I didn't come up with that question. Someone else did. And so I also thought, yeah, that's a great question. How did being bossy as a seven affect your learning? So I can't take credit for that question. But thank you for answering it. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe turn the question back to you in terms of how do you think being a five who just values information shapes how you learned things, you know, things in school, other things. Um, but do you think it also affected how you learned about your adoption? Were you adopted as an infant? Like, did you have to hear it secondhand from other people or do you remember it? So from birth, I was placed into foster care for two years and then permanently placed um, by the age of two. And, you know, same race, domestic, adoptee. And when I think of my type, my dominant type five, um, I was a kid that would always be like in the back, wanted to be always in the back of the classroom and observe and listen and gather all this information before I would even consider raising my hand, right? Like I wasn't the one that was interested in, in speaking up because I wanted to make sure I knew all that I needed to know before I responded. Like, I did not want to be wrong. I think I shared in the book club, well, I know I did, that I also heard growing up that um, you always want your way. You always want things to go your way. And I learned somewhere that maybe that's not a good thing to want your way. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, as a five, I I think that I did a lot, of course, more thinking than feeling. And it was important. It lowered my anxiety to 
to to read, to be a reader. Now, I will say there are a lot of things that um, contributed to that. Like my mother was a librarian, so books were everywhere, and I carried a book everywhere I went. As time went on, as I became an adult, it became you got to carry more than one book. You know, I may have two (laughs) or three books when I leave out the door. (laughs) I keep a book, at least a book, with me wherever I go. And I am always reading and looking things up and and just trying to be well-informed. So I, I hope that, that answered your question. Yeah, I'm wondering, did you have any siblings, Jennifer? I, I was an only child. Yeah, because I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you talked about like there's a there was a environmental piece, you know, with your mom being a librarian and probably a culture of learning and reading and books in your family. Um, And so it always makes me wonder when kids grow up in similar situations, like how much like that nature versus nurture plays in. It sounds like that meshed really well with your personality. And so it's probably really natural for you to take on that reading, especially reading for knowledge. Are you a fiction reader? Do you, do you really love nonfiction for the, the, the information gathering? Nonfiction for sure is my go-to, yeah. but I have been leaning into reading more fiction because I I, I want to balance life, right? And so I'm I'm being more intentional about what comes natural and then what is kind of stepping out of my comfort zone because I I want to lean into, as you say, a holistic way of living. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things Suzanne Sibiel talks about, so on the Enneagram, if, you ever, if, if you're listening and you're not familiar with it, if you Google, all the pictures that come up will connect all the different nine types to another two types. There's like these lines that kind of creates this like star-looking figure. We call one of the lines a stress line and one a security line. And you, you kind of alluded to this earlier, Jennifer, but you're connected to seven, which is, it doesn't change your core motivation, but it kind of gives you some behaviors to kind of lean into. And, and Suzanne teaches that, you know, we can't really find holistic healing for ourselves and like really true integration without reaching for the really healthy behaviors of our, of our security number. And we can't take care of ourselves well without reaching for the healthy behaviors of our what we call our stress number and so your stress move is to seven and so the healthy side of that I wonder like if you relate to using fiction as a way to kind of care for yourself give your brain a a break um, find some balance in your life because that would definitely fiction feels like the a move to seven in that healthy space when you choose to kind of use fiction to balance out all that other nonfiction and all that information. Gathering. Right, <laughs> exactly. I I consider it like being so serious because the nonfiction I usually pick up is pretty serious. You know, it's it, it can sometimes be heavy, but I'm I'm just naturally inclined to want to know as much as I can know. Like that's so important to me and yeah fiction kind of gives me a break <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe a what, break from thinking <laughs> yeah was that what did that look like as a child like were you a child that asked a lot of questions that like needed to know what was for dinner or where you were going what the schedule is going to be yeah absolutely yeah and I think I've always been a pretty big planner I'm not that spontaneous person and and that's something else that I'm leaning into, you know, being intentional about spontaneity for sure. Yeah. I, I think this is one of the pieces when people ask about, you know, how can this be helpful in life and, and helpful in parenting that, you know, sometimes if, if we're a type that is a little bit more sp- spontaneous, who doesn't really care about all the details, who isn't collecting knowledge as, you know, part of their um, way to manage their anxiety then, and your parenting and your parenting a child who's asking all those questions, it could be really easy to dismiss 
you know, don't worry about that. I've got it. Trust me. Why are you asking all those questions? Don't worry about it. You know, that's just annoying, all of those things. And I think specifically also as adoptees, right, we're already um, kind of super sensitive to being dismissed because abandonment is kind of like the ultimate dismissal. And, um, and so I think it's good for us to know as parents, like when that happens with our kids, I think, again, if we don't, if we don't, resonate with it like if it's not something that we get because we're we're not that type then we have a tendency to just automatically think like what's wrong with my kid like why do they want to know all these things and the enneagram gives us better questions and more compassion like it, it gives us this pause and this curiosity where we can be like huh i wonder if that information is is helpful you know i wonder if that's part of how they're processing the world i wonder if that decreases their anxiety i wonder you know like what we, I think if you're not a five, what you don't understand is that like information is life. Like it literally feels like if you don't have all that information, that something terrible could happen. Um, and so I think it gives us, you know, just more compassion for that. And so where we can understand they're not just being annoying, like this really matters to how they operate in the world. What's coming up for me now is I've always been a very curious person, and I tend to think adoptees, we may be a little bit more curious than non-adopted people because there's so many questions that are unanswered about our beginnings, and and then you throw the, the, the type five in there. It's like, yeah, it makes sense to me that I would have like a heightened curiosity, we'll say or heightened uh, desire to plan, you know, like on top of the type, you throw the adoptee piece on. Would you say that that, that like heightens whatever we're naturally inclined to be like? I don't know if that question makes po- sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do. I think possibly. I think because adoption really does, like throw so many new layers onto things. And, and, you know, if we think about, even though you're an infant, when you're adopted, you know, as Bessel van der Kolk has so, you know, beautifully told us the body keeps the score. And so, you know, I wonder if there's kind of that natural tendency in fives to need information as part of their survival and the stakes probably feel higher for an adopted person because there's this underlying thing. Like if I don't have, like for you, knowledge goes back probably a little bit to control. Like I was talking about for sevens, we probably use control in different ways. Um, Knowledge maybe helps you feel like you're in control and that helps us subconsciously kind of protect ourselves from something catastrophic happening again like a separation or an abandonment um and so i can see where maybe that would really kind of heighten that curiosity i would agree with that yeah so as a certified enneagram coach i was hoping we could just take a little time for the listener to kind of give an explanation of each type like a description is it possible to do that (laughs) <laughs> it is, along with the caveat of knowing that it's like the tip of an iceberg. So um, this, just a caveat of saying like that hearing me give the, the pithy tour, as we'll say, is is not a replacement, you know, like right. you probably won't be able to figure out okay. your type from that. You might be able to be like, I'm for sure not that one. Um, but, you know. I just really want to pick people's interests because I think yeah yeah there'll be a, there'll be some listeners that are like well let me look into this you know because I just think it's so fascinating yeah so I'll, I'll what I'll do is I will um, talk about each type based on kind of what their fear is their core fear okay um, and and again sometimes some people are like that's not mine um, but sometimes we've repressed what our deepest fears are so I'm just going to say try to listen with an open mind, take everything with a grain of salt. And then I'll, I'll also include the, 
what we call sometimes like the lost childhood message, like really the, I call it the, the message that every child longs to hear. And I think it's important when we're talking about adoptees, you know, we don't know, it's not a uh, proper Enneagram etiquette to type children, but there's these nine core messages that we know kids are dying to hear. Um, and they're dying to hear one of them in particular, but there's only nine. And so when I speak to adoptive parents on the Enneagram, we talk a lot about these nine messages and kind of, you know, ways that we can sprinkle them throughout our family culture, because that way they'll be there for your child to pick up, regardless of what type there are. Um, because again, there's, there's not 4,092, there's only nine. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so here we go. I'm going to actually, I know this sounds weird, but I'm going to start at type eight and work my way around to type seven. Okay. So type eights are, they, their biggest fear is being weak, powerless, harmed, controlled, vulnerable, manipulated, or left at the mercy of injustice. And what they long to hear is you will not be betrayed. Um, and betrayal for an eight is kind of, prejudgment without really getting to know them. It's not kind of the deep betrayal, but the dramatic betrayal that we sometimes think of, although that counts too, but it's kind of a, a, a more simplistic definition of betrayal. They, they often feel misunderstood. Type nines fear being in conflict, tension, or discord. They fear being shut out or overlooked. Um, and they need to hear that their presence matters. Type ones, fear being wrong, bad, evil, inappropriate, unredeemable, or corruptible. And the message they need to hear is you are good. Type twos, fear being rejected and unwanted, being thoughtless, worthy, worthless, needy, inconsequential, or dispensable. And they need to hear or know that they are wanted and loved. Type threes, fear being exposed as or thought of incompetent, inefficient, worthless, or as a failure. And they need to know that they are loved for simply being themselves. Type fours, fear being inadequate, emotionally cut off, too plain or mundane. They feel defective and flawed and insignificant. And they need to hear you are seen and loved for exactly who you are, special and unique. Um, you're, you're not too much and you're not, not enough. Type fives, fear being annihilated, invaded, or not existing. They fear being incapable or ignorant and fear obligations being placed upon them without notice where their energy might be depleted. And they need to hear the message, your needs are not a problem. Type sixes, fear, kind of fear itself. Uh, they need security and guidance. They fear being blamed, targeted, alone, or physically abandoned. And they need to know that, hear the message, you are safe and secure. And lastly, type sevens, fear being deprived, trapped in emotional pain, limited or bored, or missing out on something fun. And they need to hear the message, you will be taken care of. Thank you so much for that. That was nicely done. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, as we think about those through the adoptee lens, right, you can kind of hear how some people have asked, you know, are adoptees, like does adoption, being abandoned, make you a certain type? And I don't think that's the way it is. I think we're born a type and our lens changes how we interpret our adoption. But if you if you listen to all of those as a how adoptees through these different lenses, you know, you, you can think how a one is already prone to thinking they're not good enough. And then they go through this abandonment and, and how deeply that could impact that self-talk, that inner critic, um, you know, type threes, you know, maybe I didn't do enough, you know, what, what could I have done better to not have been abandoned? And, you know, I think the questions just change for every number on the Enneagram. And I think it's really, it's, it's, it's really easy for me to see now that I've been in the Enneagram world and the adoption world, you know, how each type and how an abandonment could really drive home this kind of prey on their biggest fear um, and how they would really need extra support around 
that lost message. Right. Wow. I just think you're making major contributions to the community with this work. And what would you say has been the most rewarding thing about being connected to the adoption community? I think the adoption community, more than any other subgroup of the population, has just proven itself to be incredibly teachable and vulnerable, open to community, and really open to self-reflection. I mean, I see that both in the adoptees that I work with and the adoptive parents. Like, I think adoptive parents are some of the most teachable parents I've ever worked with. And, and so it, it makes it, it, the stories can be really hard because there's obviously a lot of hard things in adoption land. You know, you know adoption doesn't happen for all sunshines and, sunshine and rainbows. But I think the redemptive part of that is, you know, how everyone comes to the table wanting to be better and do better. Yeah, I get that. And so I know you've got a lot of ideas, like great ideas, um, projects, upcoming projects. And so this book club, it doesn't stop here. I know you're going to be doing this for a while. What, what projects are you working on now? Well, I have, we have an ongoing community that serves adoptive parents, and we do a lot of Enneagram work in that community. So if you're an adoptive parent listening and are curious about how the Enneagram can kind of serve your family, um, then you can for sure check out The Village, um, which you can find on our website. We're always putting new content into the world on our podcast, the Adoption Connection podcast. So, you know, feel free to jump over there and just, and subscribe to that show as well. We do we try to feature a lot of stories of folks around the triad. So there's some practical stuff in there for parents, but there's also a lot of storytelling. And then I'm in the process of um, opening a, a new group in the fall for adoptees. It will be in some ways a continuation of the work that we started this summer, but it will also be self-contained enough that if you didn't join our group this summer, you'll be able to jump into the fall group even with, little or no uh, Enneagram experience. So the best way to, for anyone to find you is through your website and, and social media? Yeah, so just you can look up the Adoption Connection in a podcast app, um, on Google for our website, on Instagram. Our handle is actually at Post Adoption Resources, but if you, if you search for the Adoption Connection, we'll come up. Um, and I can be found in all of those places. That's great. I'll put all that in the show notes as well. And I guess we can wrap things up. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish to share? I think that's it. It's been a, it's been really a huge blessing this summer to interact with adoptees. It is kind of a new part of the work that I do in the adoption community. I've been working mostly with adoptive parents and so, you know, Jennifer, thanks to you and the other ladies in the group um, and other adoptees who have agreed to be on our podcast and share their stories uh, because it's, it's helped me so much learn and develop. And um, as Suzanne's tagline is, you know, it's individual work that cannot be done alone. So it's great to be in community with you all. Yes, it's great to be in that book club. I didn't know what to really expect, and it's just exceeded my expectations, and I highly recommend it. And I look forward to signing up to the, I think it's a nine-week that may be coming up in the fall. Is it nine-week book club? Yeah, we kind of put it out to the group to to vote on what comes next. So if you're listening to this, but by the time this comes out, we probably will have decided, um, and you can always you know, shoot me a message if you like to be added to the list for, you know, future groups. Yeah. And you do individual coaching, correct? I do. I do. So if adoptees or adoptive parents are curious um, and want, you know, more information about identifying their dominant type or applying what they know um, to their situation, uh, you can shoot me a message about that as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for having this conversation. It's been great. And for creating the time because I know you have a lot on your plate. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. It's been such a fun conversation. Because I hope 
Melissa and I have piqued your interest in the Enneagram. I want to further do so by reading a paragraph from Suzanne Stabile's study guide for the journey toward wholeness that resonated with me. Suzanne states, The Enneagram never leaves us without a solution, and the answer to our personality problems almost always begins with finding and learning to maintain balance. I enjoyed how Melissa as a dominant seven type and me as a five explain how our why we do what we do is different. She helped me better understand that it is the why that makes each of the nine personality types unique. I want to apologize for not directly answering Melissa's question right around 25 minutes, 48 seconds, when she asked, were you adopted as an infant? Did you have to hear it secondhand from other people or do you remember it? Well, here's my answer. (laughs) I learned in my beginnings from other people, especially through written reports by social workers. Most of my childhood recall starts at about five years old once I was well into my adoption. I have many memories of my thinking and a fierce independence as a little person. I identify with that. Melissa, I appreciate you for having this conversation with me. I asked you to be on my podcast and you immediately said yes. I particularly loved your idea for us to work together for an episode in the near future on you and Lisa's podcast, The Adoption Connection. I look forward to experiencing your wonderful production of this recording on your end. I always appreciate the opportunity to creatively collaborate with another adoptee. In closing, I want you, the listening audience, to especially know that Melissa and her husband Patrick, having six kids by birth and adoption, have taught them a lot about what creates thriving parent-child relationships and what doesn't. It is their hope and belief that other moms and dads can learn too. If you're an adoptee, and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianeghoston.com. Thank you for being here, and please check out my website for other episodes, onceuponatimeinadopteeland.com.